Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. From now until September, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of Abe Books by interviewing sellers who joined us in 1996, the first year of our existence. Today, we're speaking to Tom Leckie, the owner of River Run Books and Manuscripts in Ardsley, New York. Technically, River Run has been with Abe Books since 1996, but Tom himself is a relative newbie as he purchased a River Run business in 2016. However, Tom has some remarkable experience that predates his purchase of River Run, which includes appraising books on the PBS Antiques Roadshow and working for Christie's. And so we're going to hear about them today. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. It's, it's a pleasure to have you uh, on the podcast. So um, prior to taking over River Run, you were head of the printed books uh, and manuscripts department at Christie's in New York. Now, that must have been, um, well, a remarkable experience in terms of the books that you handled and sold, the high-end rare books. I'm, is that the case? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was, there's no question that it was a remarkable uh, run um, in the 17 years that I was there. The, the, op- the opportunity to handle books at that level uh, consistently, year in, year out, um, over the course of, you know, averaging five to six auctions a year. There was one year we, we had as many as 11 auctions a year, um, handling various owner sales, where we were sourcing material from, you know, a variety of, of sources. Person might have one book, they might have a hundred books, um, and those were our fine books and, and manuscript sales. Um, but then, really, the stars of of the auction world are the single owner collections uh, that really um, just expose one to the the, the greatest uh, and most remarkable collections of books that 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 have been formed in in recent memory. And um, I, I can think very fondly on the many sales that we handled and 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 the incredible opportunity to work both as a as a uh, specialist uh, handling the the you know cataloging and and uh, appraising and reviewing of the material as well as the business side of it which which you know obviously when you're when you're selling tens of millions of dollars of books a year is a significant factor for a company as as big and and as you know uh, long run as Christie's so I do see what Christie's and Sotheby's also do to some extent because some of those high-end sales are well reported they're record-breaking sales that end up in the New York Times, The Guardian, uh, in newspapers all over the world. Um, you, you must have been very aware that there was, well, is there pressure when you're dealing with a, an item that's worth millions of dollars? Well, of course. I mean, the, 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 the basis of auction is that, that the auctioneer is representing the consigner. And there's a great responsibility to properly handle and describe and market their property. Um, uh, auctioneers don't own the, the property they sell uh, traditionally. It does happen, but in especially at the larger houses like Sotheby's and Christie's, uh, they are acting as agents, and so it's a it's a it's a very tight symbiotic partnership that forms between the owner, who is then the consigner, and the auctioneer, 
who is their representative. And so there is that great that, that great pressure. Um, I, I tended to, to think of it as an honor to have been selected by the consigner um, through the you know the hard fought competition that we would we would have to gain these the, these collections, which is always a, a, a mixture of, of gaining trust of, of building relationships and not knowledge of the books and putting together a business package that makes the most financial sense for the owner uh, and the firm. There's also, of course, the pressure of working at a big company where you're representing the name, a 250-year-old firm that has a, a great tradition of handling books and manuscripts. Of And in terms of New York, you know, the New York Book Department was founded in 1977. When I took over uh, as head of the department, There, I was only the third head of the New York Book Department. Um, and that was it felt like a great responsibility to to kind of live up to my predecessors, you know, both of whom I looked up to and and consider, you know, friends and, and important, um, you know, role models and leaders in the business. And so there was that pressure to to carry it on. But it really was that pressure is what kind of fuels fueled me and I think fueled my colleagues. And um, it, 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 yes, there were there. It, there's no question that there were days where it felt pretty rough to go through to go through that. But at the end of the day, uh, the, the 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 fact of it was the, the 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 pleasure of seeing that kind of material on a daily basis. That just you know, it didn't just come in the door. It was it. it we had to earn it and we had to work. But um, but when you're working for a firm like that, there there is a, a you know that there's a prestige that comes along with it, and there's and and you're you're always going to be in the in in the conversation with any collection that's going to be coming up for sale. Quite the legacy. So, how did you get your foot in the door at a place like that? How did it all start for you at Christie's? Well, prior to Christie's, I had worked for an auction house in New York called Doyle. That was my mm -hmm. first job right out of school. I, I, I went from uh, to college to graduate school right into to the, to the auction business at Doyle. And that was great uh, background because I, I learned the business. I didn't start off immediately doing books. It's what I, what I intended to do. Um, but the timing of the transfer of the previous head of their department over to me took longer than, than I had hoped at the time. But um, but it was actually a very good thing for me. I, I worked in the marketing department. I worked in the, as a general as a general as helping out in, at sales. So I got to know the business, and I got to understand how the auction business works from the ground up, from packing, uh, you know, at, at a at a rural country house, to becoming an auctioneer, to, um, to conducting a sale, to putting together a business proposal, to learning how to talk to clients. How to anticipate their their needs and 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 uh, desires, and um, so it was a it was a great foundation. I, I then did take over the the books and prints department at Doyle, and at that point I had met the uh, the my future colleagues at Christie's a couple of times, but there just wasn't an opening. Openings at those at those firms just don't come up very often. But then in 1999, um, I think it was really my my appearance at an antiques roadshow where I was on the table with two Christie's uh, specialists um, where I was able to sort of demonstrate my, my, how I had grown and how I had gained more experience from the previous times that I'd met them. Uh, 
and how I might make a good fit with with their their team. At the same time, there was a a, a person who was going to be leaving the department, so it was really right place, right time, uh, and right opportunity. And so, um, in the fall of '99, um, we started to have conversations and. Um, they they gave, they offered me a job as a specialist in the department, and so I started uh, December of '99. I'd been at Doyle since uh, July of '95, so it was just under um, you know it's just around four years that I was there, and then um, I stayed at Christie's first as a specialist, handling um, a, a, a a majority of the cataloging responsibility. Um, I was also an auctioneer. And then in 2000, late 2006, I was named the head of New York um, and became the, the department head from January of 2007 until I left in uh, June of 2016. Right. So did you did you have a, a background in English literature? Had you studied it at college? I did. I I was an English major. I, I studied right. English um, literature as an undergrad and American lit as a as a graduate student. And my thought that I had wanted to be an academic, and then very quickly, when I made the transition from undergrad to grad, I realized that this was probably not the the path that I wanted to take, um, for a variety of reasons, um, bureaucracy being one of them, but also just I, I don't think I was a temperament. I had the te- right temperament to being an academic, and I was lucky to have a professor who took you know, took me aside one day after class and he said, I think you should get out of here. Um, he was, uh, uh, you know, on the creative side, he wasn't a, he wasn't an academic himself. He was a writer, Gilbert Sorrentino. And he said, I think you should do something else. And I, that's when I remembered a conversation that I'd had with Bill Doyle, who, who had said if I had ever wanted a job in his firm, that it was available to me. And um, so I, I took, took up the, uh, the, that, that idea and and decided that that's what I wanted to do. I I had always been collecting books since I was a teenager. So I, I was I was first a collector of books, um, and then this seemed like an opportunity to turn my bad collecting habit into a career, and to be able to stay with these things that I liked. I'm an ob- I really am a tactile person. I'm very object oriented. I don't I'm not interested um, only in the content. I'm interested in the physicality of the book, the book as object, the variability of copies of of books. That's why, I mean, I think until you've been doing this 30 years, it's really difficult for someone to say this is, you know, the finest copy I've ever seen. Until you've seen 20 copies of Darwin's Origin of the Species, you can't really say it's the finest copy you've ever seen, in my opinion. Um, And so uh, uh, that... uh, that that really is why I I uh, I gravitated in, into the auction world. It, it seemed like a dynamic and exciting place to be around these objects that I loved on a daily basis. So you also tried your hand at being a an auctioneer. Then um, were you a true fast talking auctioneer? No, the, the 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 big houses don't don't tend towards that style. It's a, it's a it's a much more um, slower pace. Urbane, <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a slower pace, and and uh, so I was an auctioneer at Doyle first, and then um and then I became an auctioneer at Christie's, and um I I, I I'm a person who likes to see something from the beginning of the process to the end, um so we would you know we, we 
from talking to the to the collector, we, we would pack the books ourselves. We would often transport the books ourselves. We would catalog them ourselves. We would be involved in the photography. And so auctioneering was just one more layer of being connected to the, the, the whole process. Um, not to sound like a control freak, it wasn't, it wasn't really, really that. It was more about just enjoying every step and the difference and the different aspects of every step. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the auctioneer on the on porn stars. Um, he talks very fast. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not that style. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Not. So you uh, transitioned to become uh, an independent rare book dealer. Um, how different is that to the auction business? Well, the foundation of it for me is the same. Everything for me starts with the book. Uh, it, it's so I love books and I can get as excited about a $10 book as I can get can about a $10 million book. Um, you know, that that's might maybe my own uh, weird way of being. I, I just like books. The difference is, as you know, as I was saying earlier, when you work for an auction house, you're a representative of the owner. You don't own the material. You're responsible for an enormous budget and an enormous um, business within the business because because effectively each department is a business within within the larger company. Um, when when you're independent, you're responsible for the whole business. And um, there's there's you know, it's there's obviously a difference in having one's own capital tied up in an in inventory. So the 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 decision making um, is is different. You're no longer um, representing uh, the owner, unless of course you're in a situation where it's a it's consigned property that that you're you are representing. But traditionally, I think for most dealers, uh, uh, and certainly the way I've set up my business, that you know consignment occupies a relatively small percentage of what I do, um, and ownership in, of property and it, it, it is the majority of it. Right. So it's it's a, it, there is a learning curve of of making of, of judging material and 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 learning how to to buy and sell. Um, what I love about it, what I what I what, what I what I love about being a dealer and, and what one of the reasons why I did leave leave Christie's um, was that as the as the auction houses became more and more, uh, you know, big and large and 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 their budgets and their um, staffs became larger and larger uh, for, for good reason. Um, the, the, the tendency was to push up the, the, the lowest value of the minimum, you know, the, the book that we could sell. You know, they were always trying to, to say, you know, we can't waste resources on $100 books or $500 books or even right, $1,000 books. And that makes sense. But as a dealer, we all know that there's a tremendous number of really interesting and important and fascinating books that are at that value level. And, um, uh, and I, I wanted to play with those. <laughs> I didn't want to, to lose contact with the entire breadth of the market. And that's what I think being a dealer allows you to do that. The auction houses, uh, for, for understandable reasons, um, no longer can is they don't represent, the entire market they represent the high end of the market and um, but a dealer can represent the whole gamut i mean i i, I bought a collection last week where there's there's ten dollar books and there's fifteen thousand dollar books 
Um, and I can, I can handle $20 things or I can handle $200,000 things. So there's no, there's no limit on either end. Um, uh, and, and that I find very enriching because I think it does make a, make me a real book person. I'm not, I'm not an auctioneer focused on a very narrow window where, where you have blinders on to what's going on in the entire market. Um, I'm, I'm kind of wide awake to, to seeing what's available and what's there at every level. Yeah, you can get a, some pretty amazing books for $100. Um, that's a message Absolutely. I like to talk about a lot. Um, okay, back to River Run. Um, that yes. business has got a long history. Um, can you explain about its legacy and also how you came to purchase the business? Sure, yeah. It really does have a nice a nice history and a, and a very well-remembered history. Um it was founded in the in 1978 by Frank Sosha, who was an uh, an executive at Harper Collins. He was a he, he was a sales executive, primarily focused on children's material. Um, of course, that was the home to Maury Sendak, so uh, there was quite a lot of Sendak material that passed through his hands. It started off where it, he was open on the weekends. He had a shop in, uh, first in Dobbs Ferry, then in Hastings, where he where he was a resident. And it would be open on weekends when he was not working at, at Harper's and he started to fill it up with books and he, primarily modern first editions. That was, you know, that market was um, different than it is now. And in, in many ways, it, it was it was the Internet changed our relationship to how we how we see the availability of, of modern first editions. But back then, that was a real driving force of the market. He was a, a, a by by all accounts, I I never had the pleasure to meet him, but but I've never heard a bad word about him. He was beloved. Um, people loved to come to Hastings, visit him, play bocce down by the train tracks along the Hudson River. Um, sometimes get invited to go to his house to see all the great books that he had stowed away there. And then he, as he sort of transitioned out of Harper's, he, River Run grew. Uh, it was open more days a week. He was famous for having bluegrass nights on Monday, where, where people from town would come down and um, and play play you know uh, bluegrass together. Hastings is a very literary town with lots of writers and editors and artists, and so he he it was sort of a magnet for them. Um, and uh, unfortunately, he died very young in 1993. His son-in-law um, was Christopher P. Stevens. Who had been in himself a bookseller, um, both independently and with uh, um, with uh, Cass Stanfield, and it was decided that Chris Stevens would continue River Run, which he did from '93 until 2016. When one Saturday morning, I decided to go in and talk to Chris. I had been into River Run, of course, because I live in Hastings, and it was you know three quarters of a mile from my home. And I would sometimes walk in there and look for things for myself and, and we would talk and um, occasionally Chris would talk to me about things, you know, great things that had walked through the door. And um, we would, we, we had a, we had a, a, a relationship, but not, not a close relationship, but I had, I had been leaning heavily towards wanting to transition out of the, 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 the pace and, and the pressure of the auction world and, and, but more importantly, the corporate world. And so one Saturday I walked into Chris and I said, you know, what's the future of River Run? And he, he 
uh, took the bait and he said, you know, are you think, are you suggesting that maybe you want to buy it? And I said, I think I am. And that's how it began. We started to talk and um, we, we, we spent, you know, a month talking and, and with my, you know, looking at the inventory and sort of making a judgment of, about what, about the business. And then we worked out a deal for me to buy it. And I, I kept it in Hastings where it had been for, uh, you know, over 30 years. Um, I since moved it in 2019, the building uh, that had been, had it been in was put on the market and, uh, and sold. And so I, I needed to find new space and I used that as opportunity to kind of reshape the business and what, what, what kind of the massive material that I was, that I was storing and holding once I had to face the realities of the real Westchester real estate market and pay market rates, it, it was a, it was a good opportunity to reshape the business and to, um, and to change sort of the focus. So, um, that really is the, the history of, of River Run. It's, it's a, it's a, of course, a reference to the first line of um, James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake. Uh, Social was a big fan of, of James Joyce and uh, named it after that. And it was a perfect name for the business because it was on a steep hill looking straight down at the Hudson River, um, you know, and the Hastings waterfront. So it had a, it had a great association as well. And I obviously retained it, even though I'm no longer staring at the river. <laughs> So today, are you appointment only, or are you still an open bookshop? I'm appointment only. Um, they're they're really the 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 retail traffic of for for my bookshop in in a suburban New York town was um, very minimal. In my first right. couple of years, I was I was open seven days a week, and there just wasn't the traffic to support that kind of time time commitment. And a lot of my activity involves travel and the need to be flexible. Um, I do not only am I a bookseller and uh, and buyer, but I'm a very active appraiser of collections. And so I need to be able to lock the door and be able to go away for a few days to, to handle that kind of work. And the appointment only model works perfectly. Um, I can I, I never have to turn anyone away because I can always react to to the 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 demand um and it also allowed me you know over the course of the last year and a half where we've all been living a very different life to still be able to see people because i i i'm a you know a one-man band i work alone i have an isolated office and so as long as everybody's comfort level was there um people felt that they could still come and see me and and it was really you know, business as usual. So I was, I was lucky in that regard. If I had been at Christie's, that would have been a very different story. I mean, it was, it was very disrupted. And right. um, so I, I was able to, to carry on. Okay. So um, our listeners may know your voice from your work on the Antiques Roadshow in the US. So does having that kind of exposure help your business? Does it help books come to you? It has, it has, it, I wouldn't say it, it, it is overwhelming, but it definitely uh, raises one's profile. It's, it's another means of communicating with people. Um, the, the whole origin of this, of the show as a PBS based program, as an educational resource is that we're there to, to kind of, to, to serve an educating purpose. 
uh, all the appraisers that are on it, it's done on a voluntary basis. We're not paid. We actually pay our own way to travel and go to it and and um, and be on it. The the reward is is you know being filmed and seeing something that's worth being filmed, and to being able to talk to to owners of interesting things. From a commercial side, it does sometimes uh, result in in uh, business. It can't be solicited during the show. And uh, that's against its 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 principles as it should be. It's it's not about commerce um, as much as it may seem that way from the outside. It's about sharing knowledge of art and antiques. In 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 some cases, after a show airs, or you know, a year later, some somebody might reach out and contact us that that we've seen. And also, we are listed on their website, and so a lot of people. Use that. Think of their website and their in their pool of appraisers as um, having specialized knowledge and having um, you know authority, and so we, we do get uh, um, referrals from them. I, I mean, get calls and emails saying you know that they saw me on Antiques Roadshow and right. and wanted to ask about something. So the the clips that I see um, are where someone walks up and they have a real a true gem, something special. But I presume the vast majority of the books you see on the show, you, you're disappointing people and saying it's not worth a lot. Is that true? <laughs> that is absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, I think any any of us who look at collections on a, on, a, on a daily basis and have done it for a long time have kind of in our bones learned that 90% of the value of a collection is, is in 10% of the quantity. So yeah. now – you can when you apply that logic to a thousand people in line at the antiques roadshow to come and show you books you're going to see 900 <laughs> books <laughs> 900 <laughs> and then you're going to see a bible <laughs> <laughs> right and then you're going to see a hundred interesting books and so that that's that's it's very much the case um, the, the thing about books to, for for antiques roadshow is it's it often the only thing in a person's home that has a date in it. You know, you can look at a lamp, you can look at a piece of porcelain, you can look at a piece of silver, it doesn't have a date. It might have a yeah. hallmark, but unless you're an expert, you don't know what that means. But if somebody pulls a book off the shelf and it says 1854, they think, wow, this is old, this might be interesting. And I, I mean, I do, I, I don't have any, you know, scientific data about that, but I, I do think that's one reason why people bring in books um, of a certain age, because just because they think this is interesting to have something old, and and we all maybe get a little jaded in what we do and handling this stuff all day. But it's important to remember that some people who don't just live this stuff every day, yeah. when they see something from 1854, that is a something to celebrate. Um, we 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 tend to be curmudgeonly uh, jaded uh, book. Book, book viewers at, at, at times <laughs> and and so we have to sometimes at, at the at antiques roadshow you do need to take a step back from from that myopic view that we have and and remember what it's like to just have the pleasure of seeing something and being excited about it um, indeed um okay well let's talk about the treasures then uh if we look back on your work at christie's and the antiques roadshow and river run what has been um, the most remarkable book or manuscript that you've, or even object that you've handled? Well, I think I'd have to start by 
talking about a collection rather than just a single object. Um, it was the Cornelius Hauck collection that we sold at Christie's in 2006. It was called The History of the Book. It was over 700 lots. It was, he was a, uh, Cornelius Hauck was a, 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 from a brewing family in Cincinnati, Ohio. And he had formed this remarkable collection of books as objects primarily. So bindings, shaped books that ran from uh, Mesopotamian um, uh, uh, manuscripts to early 20th century artist books. It was just remarkable uh, that one person had been able to form this largely through the, the good efforts of, of his main dealer, uh, Emil Offenbacher. And it was just a stunning group of books, the likes of which no one will ever see again. I mean, dealers, friends, colleagues, we all still talk about that as this amazing moment. In terms of single objects, I think, you know, as a, as a young person in the business, um, seeing J Jack Kerouac's scroll for On the Road um, uh, being taken out of a bank vault up in Massachusetts, um, that was a book that was meaningful to me when I had been a teenager, and I and I still had a teenage mind when I saw it um, in, in 2000. Um, I, you know, I was tw 28 years old. I had been in this business, and I've suddenly come over to, to Christie's, and here I am in a bank vault looking at the original TypeScript scroll of Kerouac's on the road. It was it was just it it blew my mind, as they as they say. So I, it it was incredible, um, and in terms of condition, the, the most remarkable book I ever held at Christie's was uh, the the George Holford Abel Burland copy of um, Isaac Walton's *The Complete Angler*, which looked like it it had it looked like you it had just been printed and bound. It was it was untouched. Wow. So uh, the ultimate fishing book. It was the ultimate copy of the ultimate fishing book. It was just amazing. But as a as a as a, a dealer now in the trade, I'm just a, I'm a very excited about the kinds of things that I get to have access to, um, and the kinds of people that I get to have access to, um, and uh, you know, working with with artists directly, the people who were printers in the 1950s and 60s, and and who now have books, and being able to see the kind of rich, you know, rewarding groups of materials that that come up. Um, I mean, I, 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 there's a copy that I have right now of Salinger's um, Catcher in the Rye, which goes back to what we were saying before about how easy it is to be jaded in this in this business. If somebody tells you they have a Catcher in the Rye, it's sort of like, okay, it's it's a commodity book. It's a it's a it's just a book that you know everybody wants to have. If who's got a modern modern lit collection, but this copy is just a different league. It just it leapt uh, you know leapt off the table when I saw it because of the condition. And that kind of elevation of of condition or of or of you know provenance, just that's what continues to excite me. And so it's always really hard for me to answer what what is the the greatest book that you've ever handled. Yeah. I I feel close to all of them. So after all these years, do you still get that that mind blowing sensation that you? got when you saw the, the the Kerouac scroll does that still happen to you it does every week I mean maybe it's I have something wrong with me 
<laughs> I don't know. I I just like this. I like this stuff. I can't get enough of it. I I it's a problem, <laughs> but it's also a, it's also a, a it's also enriching to be. I went to a collection last week, middle of the week, and I based on the description of it and and what I knew, I thought, okay, this is likely to be good, but I didn't think it was going to be that that great. And then I arrived and I looked at one book, um, a Louise Nevelson. Um, you know, deluxe edition with an original resin um, uh, cast multiple on on the co the cover of the box. It's Nevelson's World, and I thought, oh, you know, you got to get up. You just have to get up every day and keep going. Never, don't always trust your your instinct to to be pessimistic. It was just remarkable. And I looked at all the books. There were there was you know several hundred books. I, I came back. I I did the work. I called up the owner again, and I worked out a deal to to buy the collection. I went back the next day with my son, and we picked it up. And that, you know, that is what also excites me is is not knowing what's at the bottom of a box. Right. Um. You know, you buy a collection. You, you go into a house and you, you buy a collection of 40, 40 boxes. And there isn't, you, you didn't look through every single box. You didn't, you, you know, it, sometimes you have to kind of triangulate what you think a, a collection is worth and you just, you just go for it. And I've got 20 boxes next door to the office I'm sitting in right now. And I don't know what's in the bottom of any one of those boxes. And I really excited to, <laughs> to, to learn. It, it might be nothing. It might be a MoMA catalog from 1968 that's, that's, <laughs> that's worth $5. But the excitement is there for sure. Right. Okay. Hope springs eternal for rare booksellers. That's right. Okay. Uh, all right, Tom, our final question. Um, what book or books are you currently reading? Um, I've really been enjoying uh, a recent publication by Kim Beale, who's a, a, a lecturer at Stanford, called Good Pictures. It's a history of, of image making, uh, photography, uh, and, and the, the sort of conceptual background to photography in the 20th century. Um, and I've also been reading, I'm a, I'm a big fan and, and collector of material relating to the Black Mountain College and the artists and poets of the of Black Mountain College. So I've been reading Tara McDowell's book, The Householders, which is about um, the partners, uh, Robert Duncan and Jess, Jess Collins, known, known by Jess as an artist. Um, professionally, I've been reading um, uh, Amy Hildreth Chen's Placing Papers, The American Literary Archives Market, which is sort of a, uh, um, in-depth look at how literary archives have, the, the marketplace has changed dramatically over the last, you know, 50 years, especially. Um, and I'm in a photo book, uh, binge right now. I've just been reading, looking at, I, I do think you read photographs the same way you read language, but... Um, some people might disagree, but I, I've been uh, reading a lot of photo books lately, and um, particularly those of um, Robert Adams, the American photographer, whose work is stunning and the books are all beautifully executed. So right. that's really where I keep myself. I never really, I'm sort of um, uh, uh, peripatetic with my reading. I, I, I jump around a lot. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, it just tends to be my nature. 
do you uh, deal uh, in a lot of photo books? Is that one of your specialities? It is. I do. I I focus heavily on on photo books, um, on on art, art reference, artist books, um, design, the the book as object, uh, books about books, bibliography, and literature. Um, but I'm 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 a generalist at heart, so I I I never say no to a good book. Um, there's certain areas that I'm I'm not as gravitate I don't gravitate as heavily towards, uh, but but that doesn't mean that I I don't have experience with them and therefore can't offer some kind of a educated opinion about it, and it also doesn't mean that I'm not going to handle it, but I do tend to become more narrow as I get older, so there I'll I'll see certain collections now and that's a nice thing about about the book trade is the collegiality of it and knowing people and other people who are better at things than than I am and so I go into a um a collection and I'll, it'll be it'll be filled with things that are are really a couple of steps outside of my my main furrow that I plow and I'll I'll refer it to somebody else and be happy that the client is going to get good service and that I'm not going to have to deal with it <laughs> and it gives another bookseller <laughs> something something to 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 work with right Right. Okay. Uh, that's all we have time for uh, today. Uh, thank you to bookseller Tom Leckie, the owner of River Run Books and Manuscripts in Ardsley, New York, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Richard. It was, it was a delight talking to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. Uh, my name is Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.